Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. And man, we're super excited about this season. Now, you might have walked in today and seen like a Christmas tree in the foyer. And if you're a Grinch, you would have been like, ah, it's way too early. Anyone a Grinch? Own it. Just own it. It's way too early. We know you're out there. Um, you know, Myers knows you're there. David Jones knows you're there. Anyway, the point is, this is just a season where we like to get ready and remind each other that this is an opportunity, yes, to celebrate, to celebrate the fact that God came to earth in a body. But beyond that, it's what does that mean now for us? And for us, we believe that means making a difference in the world. And in fact, this series is called Let's Change the World because we believe we're called and have the opportunity to do just that. And if you've joined recently, I know many of you have over the past few months, you're new to Suncoast, you've made this your home. I want you to understand something. We're doing a series on this, this current one about something that hopefully doesn't just get reserved to a couple of weeks that we talk about it. It is our beating heart. We aren't just a gathering to pat each other on the back and have some fun as much as that part of it. We really do believe we have a mission and we really do believe we're called to make a difference in the world. And so we're inviting you to be part of that. That's why we put such emphasis on the next generation. And you'll often see us that we, we celebrate kids and teenagers so much. We make incredible environments for them too because they are the future. And we totally believe that sometimes this message of Jesus can only just be one generation away from extinction. And so we totally believe in championing the next generation and believing in them. And, uh, you know, you don't have to go far to hear a whole lot of horrible stats about, you know, the next generation. We totally believe in turning that around. We believe in the next generation. We think they're extraordinary. We think they're going to change the world. And so we love to champion them. And every parent here said, good job. Um, so let's get on to this week. Um, we have about 25 of our Thrivers community uh, up at Noosa right now. They're all having their own little church service at the moment. I know you two came back last night. Thank you so much. On fire. Gold star for you both. I know everyone else is there. I just got a text from all the Thrive, Keith and Bernadetta there with all their friends, and they're having communion in a service. I'm like, I'm sure you are, yes. Um, and then Brian and Vanessa, Caleb and Eleanor, a whole bunch of the crew are in Canberra today. So hello to our Canberra crew. They're having a, a great day today. So heaps going on. Now, last week as we launched this series, um, we looked at the idea as we began this thought about how, you know, about let's change in the world, how the early church, the first followers of Jesus, it was how they responded to the events that were going on in the world that eventually led to them changing the world, right? How they responded to the events in the world when a plague would hit or famine would, would arrive. And again, these would have completely different consequences in the ancient world than they would today, just with obviously the lack of uh, you know, health and science that we have today. So, so, the, so it was Christians, Jesus followers, it was the radical way in which they responded to the events in the world that eventually changed the world. So in cities all over the Roman Empire, when a plague would hit and the rich would leave and the, the leaders would leave, the Christians would stay and the Christians would administer help and support. And you can go through historical document after historical document that talks about these crazy Christians, these Jesus followers, these, these Nazareans or these Galileans, however they were referred to, they had a whole lot of nicknames, but how they stayed when everyone else left. But it's how they responded to all the events in the world that eventually caused the world to pause and stop and take notice. And then eventually they looked up and they said, what is the source of your hope? Why is it that you keep loving the way that you love? To which they would reply, and which you and I would reply, because this is the way that we have been loved by a heavenly father. And we're just following his example. Now, we don't have to die for the world. Jesus has done that. But we get the chance to love 
the world so we can point the world to the source of our hope. And so this is how it began. And that radical response eventually turned the world on its head. And we believe, and why we're doing this series right now, is we believe that same kind of love can have just the same kind of impact in the world today. Because Lord knows... The world needs it. (laughs) So then we looked at a prayer. We finished last week on an ancient prayer that was written to the Christians, not just in the Roman Empire, but specifically the Christians who lived in the epicenter of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome. And the Apostle Paul, who's one of the leaders of the early church, this is the prayer he wrote to them. So the Christians living in a world that was dominated by Rome and all the events that were happening in the planet and while everyone else was leaving and they were staying, here's what was written. This is the prayer he prayed and what we prayed last week. He said, may the God of hope Fill you, this is to the Christians in Rome, with all joy and peace as you trust Him. Now again, you might think if you're in a situation where there's pandemics and there's there's plagues and there's famines, surely the prayer should be, I pray that God would deliver you out of them. That's what he prayed. He said, I pray that your life would be filled with joy and peace as you trust in God. And here's the kicker. So that, so that I could feel great, so that I could get a gold star, so that I can be rescued, so that you may overflow, that your life may pour out with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the prayer he prayed, that not that they would, that they would get something for themselves, but they would be filled with something so their lives could pour out. And so we concluded last week by this idea that everything God does in us has a so that. And if you've ever experienced the kindness of God, and many of you have, if you've ever experienced God's grace, if you've ever experienced God meet you in a dark place, if you've ever experienced the love of God's people, whatever it might be, remember, everything God does in us and for us always has a so that. And so this is why we we start, if you're wondering what these two are, we looked at it really practical last week, and two of the things we want to really encourage beyond our programs and events and the Hope Hampers, which is just going to help hundreds of families this year. It's going to be unbelievable. The Canberra um, Church is doing it as well, which we're super excited about. But beyond our church, you know, programs and events and things we coordinate together, this is for you personally. This is your so that. And we're encouraging people. This is a real simple thought. I don't want to harp on it because you're smart and you can understand it. We want to encourage people. Whenever a, a person's name or faith drops into your thoughts, pray for them. Pray for them. And then send them a text and let them know you're praying for them. And if you keep opening up your heart for those kind of moments, you'll be surprised at how often the Holy Spirit will speak to you about maybe the need that a person has. And so you might have a prayer. You don't know why I'm just praying for you. And they go, oh my gosh, you don't have no idea how much this means to me, whatever it might be. But I want this to become cultural for us as a community. Let's use our text for something helpful and uplifting. So just get, just practice this. Just get used to this. I got a few funny texts this week and that was all la ha ha. But like... Use it properly. You never know who might be on the other end of a text that you send to someone because you prayed for them. And unlike, is that okay? It makes sense? Super radical, right? Not, but it could be. Um, the other one is invest and invite. Again, be intentional. And I know you guys do this already incredibly well, but everything you do for another person, don't just see to them giving something away. No way. You're investing into someone's life. You're depositing hope that can make a huge difference in a person's life. So we are always about that. And not for, but and if you've been investing into someone's world, there will come an opportunity where you can invite them into your world. 
maybe into your friendship group, maybe to your connect group, maybe even to a church service, whatever it might be. But on the other end of you investing, there will be an opportunity where you might be the person. If someone's marriage is going through it, if someone's kids are going through it, if someone's going through it in their mental health, whatever it might be, you go, hey, at our church, we're actually talking about that very thing. And this might be super helpful. Why don't you come and sit with me. Two very practical things, and this is kind of where we ended last week, so we're going to keep encouraging that until it really becomes cultural. Now, earlier this week, um, we had our uh, United Night where all of our, it was the last one of the year where all of our team leaders, sorry, all of our team and, and people who volunteer, whole of you were there. Um, we got together for the last one of the year, and as Alison mentioned earlier, we have our volunteer celebration evening in two Tuesday nights time, so you're all invited to that. But I happened to be chatting to uh, one of the young ladies there, and she was, she was singing this morning, Lane. And I asked Lane's permission to share this story. And Lane has a nickname, and I think it's the best nickname ever. It's called the Spirit of Christmas. The Spirit of Christmas. Because every time the Christmas season kicks off, as you heard her sing right now, we just use Lane for as many Christmas carols and items in the production as humanly possible. Okay? You ever been to a Christmas show before and the person singing wasn't awesome? That's why we get Lane, okay? So we're like, Lane, you're the spirit of Christmas. And she loves, she embodies the spirit of Christmas. She loves Christmas. And she wishes it could be Christmas all the time. So every time I see her at around this time of year, and I did on Tuesday night, I went, Lane, the Christmas tree's going up in the foyer. It's spirit of Christmas time. We're having a little laugh about it. And she goes, she goes, Johnny, there's a problem though. I'm like, What's the problem, Lane? She said, I picked a career and I never, fo- <laughs> a nurse is already laughing in the front row. <laughs> Because Lane has picked to be, she's now a nurse. And she's like, I picked a career and I didn't really consider that my Christmases could be radically turned around for some time. She goes, I'm unmarried and I have no kids, so I'm definitely drawing the short straw to be working on Christmas Day this year. And she goes, so I, don't, I can't be the spirit of Christmas this year. And my response for her was instant. And it's my response to you too. I went, no way, Lane. I said, this is the chance for you is the spirit of Christmas to shine your light more than ever before. I said, because do you not realize that there are kids who are going to be in hospital on Christmas Day? There are going to be people in hospital on Christmas Day. And guess who they get as their nurse? The spirit of Christmas. I said, so we might not be able to enjoy your singing and our nice air conditioned you know, meeting, all that stuff, but they get to experience you. And that's exactly where you are supposed to be. This is a chance for you to shine your light. Cool, hey? So, and that's what Jesus taught, right? And so right at the beginning, we see of, the, of Jesus' messages, and we read in the, in the book of Matthew, one of the very first sermons that Jesus ever preached, he said that very line. He says this in Matthew 5.14. He said, and people listening to him, he said, you, you, you are the light of the world. You're the light of the world. Now, I want you to look around this building just for a second. And I didn't warn the lighting guy for this, but Dan, here's your moment. Can we turn the lights off the stage just for a second? Okay, I want to assure you, nothing about the stage has changed. But everything's changed, right? I'm still here, but I'm going to be very tentative with how I walk right now because I don't want to fall off the edge. But then the lights come on, all right? And all of a sudden, we're in business. And I find it super interesting that that was awesome, Dan, by the way. Great job on the light. <laughs> light up, light down. You know? <laughs> um, that light, light changes an environment in a very unique way. 
okay? Light makes possible things that previously were thought impossible, right? Light highlights answers where previously there might not have been answers. Light gives the opportunity for solutions where previously there might not have been seen any opportunity for solutions. See where I'm going with this? Light didn't change anything about the structure of the stage, but it definitely, once light comes on, it saved me from falling off a stage, right? So Jesus intentionally used this picture as, as, as you're the light. You are that kind of dynamic to the world, to the world. Now, if you're a young parent here, you've been a parent anytime. I'm only leveraging my own experiences right now because I'm like neck deep in this right now. There's a radical difference when your kids, you want your kid to sleep in and the summer light starts coming in earlier and earlier and your curtains don't do a good job of that. So we brought one of those blackout blinds. Anyone know what I'm talking about, right? And man, that is like, that is a godsend. And that's bringing darkness to my daughter's room, right? So it's kind of the reverse example. You get the idea. Because when light's in there, she's awake and she's alert and so is the rest of the family. So the point is, this is the example that Jesus used. He says, hey, if you follow me, you're going to be light to the world. Now, this dawned on me in a radical way when I was about 15. And I came across a story of an event that took place around about the time that I was born, 1984, 1985. Many of you be familiar with the, um, the severe famine that swept through parts of Ethiopia at the time. And there's one particular story I learned as a 15-year-old. And this, what happened here, it helped this principle of being a light to the world make so much sense to me. And you might remember images such as this one. This is in the Antsokia Valley, where in the grip of like an app, it was such an isolated place. And, these, and the, the people there were in such a deep, deep famine. And so finally, finally, this is a 1984 message got out to the world saying, can you help us? We have nothing. We have nothing. We have, we've had years and years and years of bad crops. Now we have nothing. And this severe famine hit. And so the world started rallying. And they were like, this is ridiculous that we have incredible you know, sustenance and provisions around the place. And people who are alive in our generation are experiencing this kind of famine in the 80s. You know, So... So then people went in, provided emergency aid, and then they had to start, after the aid was there, then it began the process of rehabilitation. But then after providing emergency aid and rehabilitation, then came the investment. It's like, well, how do we prevent this from happening again? How do we now build for the future? And then fast forward about, this is what it looked like about 15 years later, the valley began to look like this. Completely turned around, and it still looks like this to this day. And here's what happened. Around the time when the famine hit, the only, I guess, um, uh, production that happened in that valley was real basic grains. And so when people came in, once they, once they brought aid and they, you know, they helped rehabilitate the communities there, they looked at the soil and they went, you guys realize this soil is amazing? And you've been like, just, you haven't been caring for it well. And you're using like basic seeds. This is such rich, fertile soil. You can grow vegetables and fruits and you can do tree, you know, mangoes and papayas. And like, you can go nuts here. And so that's what they started to do. And they didn't realize the potential that was in the ground that they lived in. And then it's like the light got shining. Where you guys can do something incredible here. And that's exactly what took place. And now to this day, um, they, 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 um, they only have to export about 20% of what they grow there because they are able to totally be self-sustainable because they realize all of a sudden all the rich potential that was exactly in the land that they were in. Now, the land didn't change. They looked at it differently. It's like the light was shone on it. And in the same way, Jesus <laughs> says to his followers that you are the light of the world. You can help the world live up to its potential. You can help the world see 
where maybe the, the activities are taking place that is causing people harm and damage and ruining potential for the future, you are now the light of the world. And then the verse goes on. Here's how Jesus continues. And he uses this term. He said, a city on a hill, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And I find this interesting that Jesus uses this term city. It comes from the Greek word polis, which obviously we get the word today, politics. Exactly. You guys know Greek. So he, I always found it interesting to use this term. But it got me thinking, as if he was just to say, if my followers as the church, as the called out ones, as Jesus followers, if you do this, if you do this light, shining your light business right, it's almost as if you, the church can be a microcosm to the city of how life could look in the light. And that you can be an illustration to your city about what a community of different people with different worldviews and different ideas can all coexist and get along and support one another and have each other's backs. That the church could almost be like a mini city to be a light to the world of how things could be done differently. And then it continues to go. This is the next verse. He says, in the same way, so you, like a light on a hill, you know, you don't put a light under the basket. He says, in the same way, in the same way, let your light shine before others that, or here's the so that, remember, everything God does in us has a so that, so that they may see your good deeds, they may see your generosity, they may see your love, they may see your service, and they would look up, that they would glorify your Father in heaven. Now, I want to think about this for a moment. And if you're a Jesus follower here, this is super important for you to understand. And if, you're, if you wouldn't say you're a Christian yet or you're exploring faith and you're checking out, this is important for you to lean into because often we can have a wrong idea of what being a Jesus follower is about and you know, what's required and what does it look like. Jesus paints a radical picture here about the role of a Christian, of a Jesus follower. He says to us to make sure we let our light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and then glorify our Father in heaven. As if to say this, the light you have received from Jesus, the life change, the hope, the encouragement, the grace you have received, the light you've received from your heavenly Father, that light, as much as it's for you, is not just for you. And the moment you came into the kingdom of God, you're now part of the mission of God. And your faith isn't just about you. Your faith has a purpose. It has a mission. In other words, we have an ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal of our faith is not for you and I to simply get from earth to heaven one day. No, 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 no. That's, like, that's one level. But the ultimate goal is beyond that. It's for you and I to partner with the mission of God to get heaven to earth. Let me say this again, because this can often be misunderstood and I, I do not want you to mishear me. Jesus taught us to pray to God that His kingdom would come here on earth, right? He said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as Christians, this has to shape our frame of reference of our faith because the goal of our faith is, you know, eternal bliss. And for one, you know, I finally get to put my feet up and I'm there and it's paradise. And, and as much as that's part of it, that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that you and I be able to partner with the mission of God to get heaven to earth. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this, but I do want to point out a couple of areas where maybe our thinking has not totally gone the full way of grasping this because 
there's been terms that's been thrown around for you know hundreds of years, if not thousands, and we're, we can all be subject to receiving this. That kind of has painted this picture that the end goal of me following Jesus is eternity forever with Jesus, and that's that's the goal. That's the goal. That's the goal. That's why. That's why. That's why. And there's, there's some passages. For example, there's one in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Philippians where he uses this phrase. Um, he goes, you are citizens of heaven. You are citizens of heaven. You, some of you might be familiar with that passage, right? And so we've often taken that to mean, that's my true home. One day I'm going to be in heaven. That's where I'm a citizen of. I will be a citizen in heaven. And that is my goal. That is the end goal. But you have to remember, when the Apostle Paul wrote this to the Christians in Philippi, Philippi was a major Roman city. It was packed with Roman citizens. And so what he was doing, he was leveraging imagery from the day, Everyone knew what a Roman citizen was. A Roman citizen had rights that the normal citizens wouldn't have, that opportunities the normal citizens wouldn't have, and they had a responsibility that the normal citizens wouldn't have. And so he leveraged this picture of being a citizen. He didn't say you're a citizen of Rome. He said you're a citizen of heaven. But see, a citizen of Rome in Philippi, their ultimate goal wasn't to one day retire back in Rome. Their ultimate goal was to bring the culture of Rome to Philippi. That's why they were put there. They were citizens of of Rome so that they would bring the values of Rome to Philippi. They would bring the ethics of Rome to Philippi. They bring the governance of Rome to Philippi. They bring the culture of Rome. You seeing this pattern here, right? No? Okay. I've done a bad job then. So, so the Apostle Paul leverages that. He goes, you in the same way as citizens of heaven. You're here now. You're in. You're in. You're in. Your role is to get now, right? The kingdom of God to earth. This is the goal. You have a goal now. Like you're in. You're part of it. You're forgiven, you're loved, you're saved, you're with God. Now you are part of God's plan. And the end goal isn't so one day when, no, you're already there. There's a goal now to be partnered with God to get heaven to earth. Okay, I'll move on. I won't harp on it too much. Actually, yes, I will. So this is why, and this is really important to understand. This is why the bodily resurrection of Jesus is like the cornerstone of the Christian belief, which everything else hangs off. And the first followers of Jesus insisted, insisted it was a bodily resurrection. It wasn't just some quasi-spiritual. He was resurrected spiritually, and we can all experience a spiritual resurrection as well. No, no, no. They insisted. They laid it all down on the line because it was real. It's what all the evidence points towards, that something physical took place, something that shouldn't have taken place, something that was unprecedented happened. And they insisted on it. They insisted that Jesus now was someone that you could touch and feel and hear and see and smell and have breakfast on the beach with. That's actually what happened. And since the resurrection of Jesus, that's how God's kingdom, heaven, has been exploding onto the world in a way that we can see and touch and feel and smell that the principles and values of heaven isn't just a spirit, as much as it is spiritual, it's not just that. In the same way, just Jesus was bodily resurrected. As Jesus followers now, the kingdom of heaven, as much as it bursted on the world scene through the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it is now continued. It's not just celebrated, but continued on with the practical way in which we love, serve, give. And every time you're generous to someone, every time you offer support to someone, every time you pray and text, every time you invest, every time you invite, every time you give, every time you volunteer, every single time you are continuing what began with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. You are bringing God's kingdom, heaven to earth in every act of 
love, service, and generosity. It is a continuation of what began with Jesus' resurrection. Think about that. Now, begs the question. Did Jesus' resurrection change everything about the world? Everything? Well, as far as we can tell, Rome didn't go anywhere. So at the time, no, it didn't. And there's still, you know, political powers around the world that are super painful and harmful to their citizens and people. There are a heap of systems around the world that cause injustice on so many levels. There's so many nations that still got a boot to their neck where they're experiencing economic injustice from other parts of the world. I mean, it still happens. There's still these unjust political systems all over the world, just like there was with Rome. But, but, as much as there was darkness, there was now light. And as much as there was still despair, there was now hope. And as much as there was still universal, inhumane practices and culture, there was now love. And so light began to shine. Didn't mean there was no more darkness. It just meant there was now light. And in the same way, we can never allow the presence of darkness to cause you and I to hide our light under a basket. You must let your light shine. You must recognize that what God has done in you is so that you may overflow with hope. So when people hang with you, are you spilling out hope? Are people more hopeful because you're in their world? And you know, this works on a, a super personal level too. The book, um, controvert- I mean, the author's been controversial for a whole lot of different reasons, but man, the book helped me a whole lot. It's from Jordan Peterson called 12 Rules for Life. I don't know many of you would have read it, but he makes and he's a psychologist, and he makes an incredible, helpful uh, argument and illustration about um, what to do if your life is experiencing, say, darkness, right? And if you've ever walked through any kind of uh, mental health struggles, now I'm, I'm no professional by any means. I'm just explaining what he's, ex- he's written in the book here. But he's saying if you've ever experienced um, hardship or, or tragedies or hurt or something that is, is too much for you to carry, here's what he'll tell you to do. He'd said, he'd said, stop doing what you know to be harmful. Just stop it. If you know something is harmful, you don't have to give a philosophical exposition as to why it's harmful. Just in your gut, you, you know something's harmful. Harmful to yourself, harmful to your marriage, harmful to your kids, whatever it might be. He says, just stop it. Just stop it and start doing what you know you can do. Pretty simple advice, right? So he's saying, stop doing what you know to be harmful. You can stop it and start doing something that you can. Don't do things you can't do. Do what you can do. He says, in that way, and here's the point. He said, in that way, you will then be left, and I wish I I should have written this down, but try and listen. He said, then you'll be left with the inevitable bare tragedies of life, but they will no longer be compounded with bitterness and deceit. He said, yeah, there'll be a tragedy still, but you don't have to pile on bitterness and resentment and anger. He says, when you stop doing what you know to be harmful, right? Start doing what you can do. Shine some light in it. Doesn't mean all the darkness goes, but there's definitely less of it. In other words, he says this, you may learn to encounter life's tragedies in such a way that they stay tragic, merely tragic, instead of degenerating into outright hellishness. Did you catch that? 
So it doesn't deny that there's suffering. This is, again, this is psychology. Some of you might, I, I had someone write to me recently going, why do you bring psychology up and stuff? It just helps us to understand principles that Jesus was teaching us, right? So you take an ancient document written 2,000 years ago and psychologists today just coming up with, oh yeah, it makes sense what Jesus taught about, you know? So just backing it up. So here he's saying, if you're experiencing tragedy, shine, shine whatever light you can. And then maybe the tragedy will stay merely a tragedy and not descend into outright hellishness. Okay, moving on. So Jesus, he preached to say, I want you to shine a light. I want you to remember this. He was talking to Jews, to Jewish believers at this time. And for them to hear the term shine a light, or to, you know, to shine your light on the gen, you know, to shine your light to the world, you're the light of the world. For them, the world, the world in this term, it didn't mean a plot of land or the planet. It meant the systems of the world. So for them, they would have interpreted as the Gentiles. So Jesus is saying, I want you to shine your light to the world. You're the light of the world. So could you imagine that the Jewish believers here listening to Jesus saying, ah, okay, so he's wanting us to shine a light on the Gentiles, on the Gentiles. So we all know how bad Gentiles are. And so it could have easily been interpreted, and this is what we see took place next, is when Jesus said shine a light, they interpreted it as, okay, so we're to point out how, how bad Gentiles are. We're going to shine a light on the Gentiles. Do you realize you guys are separate from God? You guys are in a bad place. You guys, all your religious works, everything you're doing, it's no good. It's not, you're all bad, you're bad. And that's what they're thinking. But Jesus didn't mean it from that perspective. Because remember, He said, I want you to shine your light so people may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, say, I want you to live your life. To shine a light means live your life in such a way that people will see you and not look down at how bad they are, but be the opposite, that they'd look up and take notice of God. So in other words, what he's saying is shine your light isn't how to point out how bad Gentiles are. To shine a light meant to point Gentiles to how good God is. Do you see the difference? And in the same way, this is for you and I, right? We are to shine our light, not to tell the world how wrong they are, but to show the world how good God is. Now, this was going to be a massive hurdle for Jewish believers to cross. Huge. Because up until this point in their story, the tension between Jews and Gentiles was so thick. And there'd been generation after generation of layers of culture and, and race-based politics and ethnicity and a whole lot of things that went into it that caused a huge divide between Jews and Gentiles. And this tension came to a head in the book of Acts in the New Testament. And Peter, who was one of the, the leaders of the church, is one of Jesus' first followers. In this moment, in the middle of this tension between Jew and Gentile, Peter had a dream. Have you ever had one of those dreams? For Peter, it's like one of those dreams you have when you had dodgy pizza late at night and you have those whack dreams, right? This is what it was for Peter. And in the dream, in the dream, he starts seeing all these like uh, what a Jew would consider unclean animals, like insects and bugs. And a voice in the dream spoke to him saying, Peter, and if this is weird, stay with me, okay? I'm just, I'm giving the shorthand of what took place. And in the dream, the voice said to Peter, Peter, I want you to kill and eat these animals. And in the dream, Peter's like, no way. I'm not, I'm not eating, even though God said, I'm not gonna eat it and kill it, right? Because to a Jew at the time, dietary, the dietary laws there, right? If you were to break one of those, that was the equivalent to breaking your covenant with God. Like this was a huge deal. In fact, there was a story that came out through another historian at the same time about a Jewish mother and her two sons, how they were tortured and executed because of their refusal to eat pork. And for a Jew, pork was considered unclean. Okay, would you be willing to be tortured and executed in order to go vegan or to avoid being vegan or whatever it might be, however it's tortured for you, right? This is how serious it was to them. That didn't, that didn't even get a laugh. It got a, it got a, it got a groan. Oh, Jono, you know. Um, Anyways, so 
In the dream, God says, no, no, no. What God has cleansed, you must not call unclean. And he wakes up from the dream. And he's like, what happened in that dream? That was crazy. And then there was a knock on the door. He opens the door and there's two Gentiles standing at the door saying, our boss, he's a Roman centurion, a Gentile from Rome, and he's a big dog. He wants to see you. So Peter's like, well, that kind of makes sense with the dream I just had. Maybe this is still the dream, actually, you know? So Peter goes with them, rocks up at the house. There's Cornelius with all his household, all these Gentiles, all these Roman citizens. Peter must be flipping out. And here's Peter's opening line. It was a banger, okay? Imagine this for a moment. He rocks up, and this is literally his opening line. He says, you're all well aware that this is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. How's that for an opening line? You rock up to someone who invited you to their house. Prior to this moment, I considered you the same as pigs. I'm impure. But lucky for you, God has shown me, you know, that I shouldn't be so racially prejudiced. And up until this point, there was a massive divide between the world and the community charged with the message the world needed. And this community, Jesus referred to as his ecclesia, his church, or a proper definition is, ready for this? Called out ones. Called out. And up until this point, this point here was Peter. This was 20 years, 20 years approximately after the resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus was saying to all his disciples, you know, this message is for the world, it's for the world, it's for the world, it's for the world, it's for the world, for the world, for the world. For the world. 20 years later, Peter still doesn't get it. It took a whacked out dream. And a bizarre moment. And Peter's standing there going, you know, what's taking place here? We were called out ones. But remember this, God has always called out people. And we talked about this last week. Not to simply be rescued from the world, but to be a light to the world. Jesus never called his followers so they could be separate and live in convents and monasteries away from the world. He's like, you know, have light and you must pour this light out on the world. And so it goes on. Oh, sorry. So Peter began to preach. He's like, what's going on here? Who are you? And this is Cornelius' response to Peter after Peter's zinger of an introduction. This is what Cornelius says. He goes, we're all here, meaning him and his household and his servants and his employees and some of his soldiers. He says, we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Now think of this. So you've got Peter there going, what is going on? How are, but you guys aren't even Jews. And you, I mean, you guys weren't even there when Jesus was resurrected. We were the ones who were there. Now you guys want in on it. You've heard, you've heard this message and now you guys want in, but we don't even like you. Like you don't even like us. But they're like, but we love Jesus. And here's a tension that has, and I consider this a huge tragedy that has existed for too long where so much of the world has always been attracted to the message of Jesus but they certainly haven't always been attracted to the community charged with spreading the message of Jesus. And in fact, the stats will tell us today that even millennials, millennials are super engaged with and super intrigued by Jesus. It's church that they've got no interest in. So how, how has it become, not you guys, you guys are awesome, but how has it become such a huge divide between Jesus and his message and those charged with being stewards of that message. We have to bridge that gap, right? Not be like a Peter who took 20 years to go, I'm now starting to get that we're not supposed to like be, oh, we're called out to be a light, not called out to be saved from, but to help save. This is why our church vision 
is to be a church that loves like Jesus. We follow his lead. We follow his example. This isn't about being churchies and following some church tradition or church. We follow Jesus' example, okay? And this is important, to build a church that the unchurched love. Because what's the alternative? And I'm not merely talking about a service here or Sunday gathering, talking about who we are as called out ones. Our city should love that we exist. Our city should be grateful that you are here. Our city should grieve if they were to go, Suncoast is no longer here. Uh Uh-oh. Our city should be thanking us for the way in which we serve, love, and we are a light to the world. Our vision is that we would be such a church that our city goes, we might not believe everything you guys believe, and some of the stuff you do is a bit like out there, but man, are we super grateful that you guys exist. And man, we love how you treat us. And man, we love how you support our kids. And man, I love how you supported my neighbors. And man, I loved how you helped us out when my parents were sick. And man, I loved when we went through this, we're able to knock on your door. I might not believe everything you believe, but heck, how it makes you guys live and act and give and serve, I'm super grateful. I love you guys. That's why that's our vision. All right, I gotta, I gotta finish. So, <laughs> so after Cornelius says, I wanna hear this message, I'm so attracted to this message, this is what Peter said next. And this is tragic in a way. He said, I now realize, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation. Now, remember, 20 years earlier, Jesus was like, I want you to go into all the world. Tell people about this incredible life-giving message. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, He says to His disciples, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit and you're going to be my witnesses. Yes, in Jerusalem and yes, in the whole nation of Judea and yes, to your neighbours who you don't like, the Samaritans. But more than that, to the ends of the earth. Like Jesus couldn't have put it any more simpler and plainer. It took 20 years for the head of the church 20 years for him to say, I now realize it took Peter not only two decades for the penny to drop, it took him a weird as dream. It took him a divine encounter with two Gentiles that brought them to their Roman centurion. But finally for him to go, all right, I get it. To the world we go. What's it going to take for you to get it? And is your faith reduced to the size of you? Or have you recognised that what God has for you and what your Heavenly Father thinks of you and every bit of grace and hope and forgiveness and light that your Heavenly Father has freely given you in the same way you've freely received it, He wants you to now freely give it and to be a light to the world. And I'm asking you, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, follow Peter's example and now realise that this isn't just for you. You have light inside of you that somebody needs. And I'm asking that you would change the things that you complain about. I'm asking you change, instead of complaining about a church service or complaining about politics, I want you to complain about the state of the world and how you have a light and you want to do something about it. I want you to complain that you don't have enough resource to help all the people that you want to help. I want you to complain that you don't have enough hours in the day and enough margin in your life to do all the good and shine all the light. Like change your complaints. Recognize that what your heavenly Father has given you has a, so that, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What's it gonna take 
for you to, like Peter, to say, I now realize. And so Peter began to preach, began to tell everyone in the room about Jesus. And as he was preaching and teaching about Jesus, this is awesome, this is how it finishes. This is what took place. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came and all those who heard the message and the circumcised believers, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter were astonished. This wasn't just the Peter thing. This was all Jewish believers. They were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. No one got this yet. No one got this. But notice this while Peter was still speaking in the middle of it. God's like, now I can move. Finally, you're going to the end of the earth. Finally, now I can pour out on the end of the earth. This is always about what God's doing. You and I, we're vessels. You and I, we're messengers. It's not our message. We carry a message. And everywhere that you are, your heavenly Father is wanting to pour out His Spirit on people. But He does it through you. And you have no idea what happens when you flick on the light. Darkness might not all go, but at least you'll bring some light to it. There might still be tragedy in the people you're helping, but you might stop it from descending into pure hellishness, right? There still might be pain, but because of your light, there might not be despair any longer, right? There still might be hurt, but because of your love and generosity and care, there now also might be laughter and love and hope and light. So I'm asking you, I'm asking you, if you're a follower of Jesus here, would you shine your light? I know, I know, and Alison mentioned this before, sometimes we feel like we are absolutely empty and we might not have much to give, which is why the prayer of this series that we prayed right at the beginning is that you would be so filled with God's joy and peace so that you will get to the place where then you can now overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So my question to finish with today is where are you shining your light? Where are you shining your light? Where are you shining your light? Where are you? Where are you? Where? Where? Where are you? Where are you? Those of you sitting, I don't know which camera I'm looking at, but you guys, where are you shining your light? Holy Spirit, I'm grateful today that you're here just as you were there, pouring into our lives, filling up with filling us with joy and hope. May we be those who pour out, who overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for those who are, maybe feel like they're running on empty today, that they would be encouraged, their lives again would be filled. And I pray for those of us, however long we've been following you, today it would dawn on us that this faith is so much more than just for me, that I have some light now to pour on the world around me. I pray you'd help us to do this today. Jesus. And Lord, particularly for those here that maybe have never, never encountered the hope that's in Jesus and whose lives have never been open. Maybe they're watching at home or they're in the building. I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would show them just how loved and valued and forgiven they are in your eyes. May they know Jesus. May they know life. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.